Welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity at Trinity International University. I'm Matthew Epinet, Executive Director of the Center. As we look forward to our 30th annual conference, The Christian Stake in Bioethics Revisited, June 22 through 24, this episode of the podcast looks back to the very first address from the very first conference, way back in May of 1994. In fact, the intro music for this episode comes from the videos of that 1994 conference, The Christian Stake in Bioethics. That conference came out of two days of meetings seeking to determine what might be done by Christians to address the range of issues that fall under the heading of bioethics. As I'm sure you've heard me say before, it was determined that what was needed was a center to mobilize engagement in bioethics that would enable people to work across professional, denominational, and institutional lines to do genuinely Christian engagement with the issues of bioethics. The 1994 Christian Stake in Bioethics Conference was then organized and served as the launch event for the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. As I mentioned, this is the very first talk from that conference, and it was delivered by Nigel Cameron, who, as you probably know, was one of the team of people who helped to found CBHD. The title of the talk is The Moral Health of Medicine, and in it, he identifies a profound cultural shift in public life, in institutions, and in professions that has seen each of these areas move away from Judeo-Christian underpinnings. Cameron focuses on the profession of medicine, of course, and what he identifies from the Hippocratic Oath as the three covenants involved in medicine, one of which, in his view, has been abandoned. He concludes with two suggestions on what might be done to respond to these changes. Before we get to Dr. Cameron's address, however, I have a CBHD membership announcement. I want to invite you to read Frankenstein with the CBHD staff. As you probably know, the novel wrestles with themes of creation and destruction, alienation and loneliness, birth and life, the toxicity of revenge, and the quest to conquer the unknown at the cost of one's humanity. We're recommending that participants read the 2021 edition published by BH Books. Literature professor Karen Swallow Pryor has created an edition of Frankenstein that illuminates Shelley's intended themes and messages including an extensive introduction to the original author and to the context of the novel. Through her footnotes and discussion questions, Pryor's commentary also helps the reader understand how to read Frankenstein in light of the gospel. We'll meet via Zoom during the week of April 10 for the book discussion. Exact date and time will be announced soon. This reading group is available only to CBHD members, so to participate, become a CBHD member. Visit cbhd.org slash sign dash up. And now here is Dr. Nigel Cameron from 1994. It is uh, ironical that here in the United States, and after three years here I am still, I think, able to make um, ironical comparisons with Europe, it's ironical that the process of secularization, particularly in public life and public institutions, should have proceeded so much further and faster than in most European countries, despite the fact that the church attendance rates here in the States are something like 10 times as high as in the major countries of Western Europe. We find ourselves in Europe and in North America at a unique point in history, at a time of profound cultural shift as whether our churches are full or whether they are empty, our public life 
and our institutions, not least our professions, are becoming emptied of the distinctive commitments which have characterized them for so long. And of this, there is no better example, of course, than medicine. For one thing, uh, despite its uh, pagan roots, the Western medical tradition has been uh, profoundly suffused by distinctive Christian values. The pagan Hippocratism, out of which it grew, was reconstructed in the light of the Christian revelation and was one of the most distinctive elements in pagan antiquity which the early Christians decided not to abandon but to reuse having set it within the new framework of Judeo-Christian monotheism. Again, as uh, first in the field, medicine continues to play a defining role in our idea of what it is that makes a profession. As goes medicine, so goes the professional ideal in self-discipline, in the bundling of value and technique, in the distinguishing of compensation from mere, con a mere contractual reduction. And of course, the special role of medicine derives in part from its unique place in human experience as that which deals with those moments when our humanity is laid bare in its tenuous hold on health and happiness at birth and at death, in sickness and in pain. Medicine is handed down to us as an exercise constituted by distinct moral commitments. Uh, to be precise, there are certain highly specific ethical commitments and as their context there is a general characterization of the profession as a moral enterprise. That is the legacy of the early marriage of Hippocratic paganism and the Judeo-Christian tradition. And if we are motivated to look around us, as I hope we are, at the uh, benefits, cultural benefits, which we have inherited from the Christendom centuries, a good case can be made for finding in the humane medical tradition the jewel in the crown. As a result, what happens to medicine is fraught with a special significance for our society and its values. What happens to medicine, of course, is that which is most closely related to the idea of what it is to be human, which lies at the heart of all our liberties and of all the goods with which our culture has bestowed us. So a shift in the idea of what it is to be human, a refashioning of the image of humankind in the light of the post-Christendom culture and the post-Judeo-Christian assumptions is perhaps the most traumatic of all the implications of our emergence into the new cultural social situation in which we find ourselves. Uh, which we may refer to as postmodernity or by some other term. Recognition of the culture crisis in which we stand has issued in the development of the discipline of bioethics. This term, of course, something of a neologism coined in the early 70s to stand for a discussion which even then was only 20 years old, 
a discussion of the interface of uh, medicine, law, biology, philosophy, theology, and you can carry on yourself, uh, the interface of these various disciplines, where they came in contact with the distinct question of what it is to be human and what it is to be healthy and to be sick. Among evangelicals, it is a striking fact that the major engagement in this discussion has been limited to the one area of liberal abortion. Here in North America, of course, there has been one of the most significant features of recent political history was that particular engagement on the part of the evangelical community. North America, of course, has been the home of mainstream and generally secular bioethics. Had it not been for North American scholars and institutions, as an academic discipline, it would hardly have merited the consideration which it does now worldwide. And yet there has been almost no connection whatever between the moral and religious fervor which has gone, and some of us would say rightly, into the moral political issue of liberal abortion and this growing academic professional policy discussion which we identify with the label bioethics. The bioethics establishment, of course, has been generally contemptuous of the pro-life movement. Pro-life movement responding perhaps in kind where it has recognized the serious academic professional policy debates going on, although by and large not recognizing them at all. And those of us who over the last uh, 10 or 15 years have sought to raise money, money of course, um, often the bellwether of commitment, to raise money for the kind of engagement in which uh, we find ourselves today, evangelical perspectives on bioethics, I have discovered uh, how the level of interest on the part of uh, pro-life organizations, the good work they have been doing, but not this, uh, as on the part of other funding bodies uh, among uh, conservative evangelicals in the bioethics agenda has been vanishingly small at a time when there are now some dozens of bioethics projects uh, sponsored by uh, universities and other similar institutions up and down the country as indeed dotted around the world. In this country which is uniquely rich in evangelical higher education plant. Most, of course, most countries have little or none of what there is here in the liberal arts, as well as little of what there is here in the context of the seminary. In this country, uniquely rich in evangelical educational um, institutions, the resources which have been committed to bioethics, while in secular academia it has been something of a phenomenon, you know, new journals, new institutions, new jobs. That's how you measure phenomena in the academic world, particularly if you're an academic. There has been almost no parallel development within the evangelical constituency. And my concern is to lay out some kind of understanding of the relationship of the evangelical agenda, <clears throat> the agenda of the community to which most of us belong as Bible-believing Christians, and the agenda in the public square of the bioethics community, of which some of us are also members, even if somewhat dissident members, on its fringes. Well, what is happening to medicine? It is of prime importance to understand 
that the phenomenon of liberal abortion, however we assess its seriousness, and some of us assess its seriousness as being very great, is not a disease, it is a symptom. And some of us would want to characterize the way in which evangelicals have typically responded to abortion as erring in just that matter and in believing that they can heal the patient by treating the symptoms. It is a disease. It is evidence of a disease which lies at the heart of our medical culture. Antipathy toward abortion, of course, has been a plank of the Western medical tradition for uh, 2,000 years. Though the man, Hippocrates, is shrouded in myth, he obviously lived, although as one of the standard reference texts says of him, he was the most famous clinician of antiquity of whom almost nothing is known. Whether or not he wrote the oath which bears his name, uh, he seems to me there's good reason to believe he may have, although it isn't in the Bible, so it doesn't worry me. <laughs> Whether or not he wrote the uh, many volumes of the so-called, with uh, unintended irony, so-called Hippocratic Corpus, as the writings of Hippocrates and his school are known, uh, the school which arose out of this pagan and probably Pythagorean physician who had distinctive philosophical religious reasons for doing the kind of medicine he did, uh, this uh, school of medicine was adopted in the first Christian centuries, as indeed in the first Islamic centuries, and uh, which came to have a not dissimilar role within Judaism. It was adopted as a pattern for distinctively Christian ethical practice in medicine. And uh, from that day until just a generation ago, as um, Evan Pellegrino, whose name some of you will know, most distinguished and uh, unusually conservative um, uh, professor at Georgetown, as Edmund Pellegrino has recently noted, um, that until around 1960, this tradition was pretty much fixed. Pellegrino um, talks about there being four periods in, in bioethical history. The first period lasts from classical antiquity until around 1960. We find ourselves in the um, culture crisis in medicine, itself sparked, of course, by a broader culture crisis in our generation, at the close of the Hippocratic centuries. And for all, there have, of course, been divergences during that period. For all, we aren't seeking to uh, paint a golden age view of medicine until a generation ago. There was extraordinary fixity in medical values, particular medical values, and even more important, there was extraordinary unan unanimity in the notion that medicine was constituted by a marriage of values and skills. And in both of these facets, in the particulars and in this marriage of value and skill which constituted and gave its extraordinary moral power to our medical tradition, uh, in these two and in the withdrawal from them both, we see the crisis in our medical culture, which is itself to be seen as the root of this diseased system of which liberal abortion, the most dramatic, but merely one of the symptoms. Now, in the place of that Hippocratic blending of skills and techniques, we discover among ourselves, and it's very interesting because some of you 
have studied or indeed teach in medical schools. Some of us occasionally visit medical schools and ask questions of people. Um, it's nowhere more evident than in the context of medical education. But in place of that understanding of Hippocratic skills and techniques blended together in the profession of medicine, we find ourselves in a situation of increasing reduction of the medical enterprise to the practice of certain particular skills. Even though there are many in medicine who would resist such a reduction, once the marriage of skills with these particular values, which seriatim one by one are being disowned, the sanctity of life being chief among them, once the marriage of medicine with these particular values has begun to come apart, the notion that we can define medicine any longer as a marriage of skills and moral commitment becomes increasingly hard to maintain. So that for all the goodwill evidenced by many in these discussions, for all their concern to maintain some kind of covenantal notion of the medical enterprise, uh, the cultural logic is against them. And the shift into a mere technical reduction of the medical enterprise um, seems to be um, an inevitable one. Uh, it is hard, of course, particularly in the context of the pluralist self-understanding of the new society into which we are emerging and of which the medical culture is an epitome. It's hard within that context for us to be able to claw back at some notion that there are consensus values which themselves, married to the skills, constitute professional practice. And so we find ourselves in a situation articulated um, unselfconsciously within the bioethics community in which in place of that marriage we have an individualistic notion of medical practice as the purveying of skills within a community which is a post-community community in which individuals as providers or as patients are involved in contractual negotiation. Uh, symbolized, of course, most evidently, um, and I'm not saying this is all wrong, but in the growing move toward the adoption of the living will, which uh, is rich in its symbolism of the giving to the individual of the right to determine the particular blend of uh, values which will determine how medical skills are practiced. We move from the notion of a commitment by the profession as a whole to a particular blending of skills and values to the giving over increasingly to the patient, at least notionally, in informed consent uh, autonomy procedures of control of the clinical situation insofar as values questions rather than skills questions are at stake. And I do believe the living will, and I, historically it seems to me that the Patient Self-Determination Act, so-called, um, stands as the most significant public policy development. It may be in many generations of public policy and medical engagement as a recognition that we are now in a situation in which individual patients must be told to write their own Hippocratic oaths. That the only moral ground for the physician-patient relationship lies in patient assent to a particular moral structure within which the relationship will be carried on. And that is the um, uh, medical context which uh, I have referred to as the new medicine, as one in which in place of consensus there is a self-conscious atomizing 
of the medical culture. Not only patients, but also physicians become individuals rather than those who work in covenantal relationship together and in which the individual in the exercise of autonomy and through protocols of informed consent buys into the exercise of technical skills on the part of the one whom we used to call a physician and who is now surely with uh, significance referred to as a health care provider. Uh, language, I think, here is of uh, great importance. Uh, and I am much happy to say physicians, nurses, paramedics, and people like that than I am to say healthcare providers. Uh, because the very term physician conveys still within it, in its connotation in our culture, much of the freighting of moral commitment with which down many hundreds of years uh, it has been associated. Now, in such a gloomy context, uh, what is to be said? The most significant feature of the old medicine, the feature which gave it such congruence with the uh, Christendom centuries, the feature which gives me most concern as we see it uh, denied, was the fact that the Hippocratic Oath, in its blending of skills and technique, in its focus on particular key moral commitments, sanctity of life, confidentiality, the privileged character of the physician-patient relationship, the Hippocratic Oath, in its focus upon these particulars, was before all else an oath. Now that may seem somewhat self-evident, uh, but it is largely not evident in the way in which the oath has been um, discussed. It is supremely inevident in the way in which the oath was replaced after the Second World War in a way which was totally well-meaning by the World Medical Association, indeed with leadership from the British Medical Association, in the so-called Declaration of Geneva. Declaration of Geneva was an attempt to reinstate Hippocratic medical ethics. I spoke some time ago to uh, an aged physician in Britain who was involved in the process. That is how he put it. That was what they thought they were doing in the light of what had happened under the Nazis in the Third Reich. Crucially, what they did not do was to ground this declaration in the theistic undergirding, which, of course, an oath necessarily has. And though the Hippocratic Oath originally was pagan, and though Christians must have winced when they swore it, if they swore it, certainly they must have winced, uh, certainly when they, when they recognized the character of the actual document, uh, the nature of the theism, the pagan gods, what was central was the fact that it was indeed an oath. And they uh, demythologized this uh, paganism and took it as a Christian statement. And so the great medical schools of Western Christendom instantiated the oath at the heart of their system of values. The oath was an oath. It placed the horizontal relationship of patient and physician in the context of the vertical relationship of patient and physician and their God. And the vertical relationship, the Hippocratic covenant between the physician and his God, 
locks in place the horizontal values. And so the other covenants, and it seems to me there are at least three covenants in the oath, this, this dynamic covenantal character of Hippocratism, uh, to me at least explains how it has lasted 2,000 years and more, and given such a, a stamp uh, to the Western medical tradition that its shape, even now, a generation, if you like, after we have begun to question that tradition, remains still largely intact. The interlocking covenants of the physician and his God, of the physician and the patient, of the physician and the profession, these three interlock in the consulting situation and have given the most distinctive character to the Western medical culture. And in the removal, all unknowing, as I believe it to have been, of the theistic dimension, and who knows what they couldn't, couldn't do in the 1940s, the symbolism is rich. We have dispensed with the theistic grounding, as we have, of course, in the rest of our ethical construction in public policy, in professional policy in the West. And we have instead moved to a merely horizontal set of relationships, which are in principle therefore negotiable. An oath is non-negotiable. They're negotiable, they have therefore been negotiated. And it seems to me the symbolism of the living will is of the um, uh, ultimate step toward recognizing that in every particular case, the informed consent procedures um, institutionalize the atomizing of the culture, the withdrawal from the notion that there is such a thing as good medicine, that there is such a thing as a consensus value system within which physician and patient can come together, the abandonment of the notion that uh, there is anything other than a mere exercise of individual preference in the uh, moral dimension to medical practice. What is there that we are to do in response? Uh, this is, of course, a um, somewhat um, thumbnail sketch of a highly complex situation. And there are many points at which I would heavily footnote uh, statements which I have made. And to that, for that, you may well call me to account in the moments for questions we have later. Our response, first of all, and this, in a sense, is what is most central is to grasp the systemic character of the problem. I don't know how many hours and how many dollars have been spent addressing the politics of the abortion question, and I have spent them myself. But we have to begin to spend dollars and hours addressing the systemic collapse of the Western medical culture. Because if abortion is but a symptom, who knows what lies around the corner as the Pandora's box of the Human Genome Project is opened. We can scarcely imagine what the questions will be, let alone what their answers will be given within the framework of public policy in this country. We must recognize the systemic character of the collapse of the medical culture. But we must, of course, do more than that. We must engage, it seems to me, in a twofold task toward the rebuilding of our medical culture. We must first of all engage in the development and maintenance of a distinctive Christian culture, 
Medicine, perhaps more than any other feature of our public life, has been um, common to Christians and non-Christians within our cultural tradition. That was recognized and it was established in the early Christian adoption of Hippocratic ethics. It was no mere sectarian religious view. It was a public view of medical values which, if you like, was baptized into the church. We have to dislodge, to disconnect ourselves from a commitment to a unified medical tradition. As that tradition now, in its departure from that consensus and from any consensus, makes it impossible for us to maintain the distinctives of our Christian vision. And so it seems to me we will see whether we like it or not, those who understand what is going on, building an alternative medical tradition in contrast, increasing contradistinction to the main line. By medicine, of course, I speak about the range of medical professions and ancillary professions. I speak about public policy questions. I speak also about the, um, the scientific component in that increasingly medicine is concerned with matters which are not themselves um, matters for MDs in the whole development of in vitro and the genome project and so on. We must self-consciously seek to shape an alternative medical tradition, given that the mainline tradition in which we have invested so heavily is departing from the place where once it was. But secondly, as we do that, and it may well involve increasing institutional development, not only of bioethics centers and hospitals and other such institutions, but as we, um, as we do that, and as in some ways we are forced to do it, we must be very careful lest this press us into a, a situation of ghetto in which we merely come to service Christians and their own commitments to their own kind of medicine. We must do this um, in such a way as to leave us as dissidents within the main line. They must not be able to forget us, whether we are physicians or theologians or bioethicists or merely patients, as of course we all are. We must do it in such a way as to ensure there is a thorn in the side of the main line. In order that, what we may believe to be the excellence of this alternative medicine, of distinctively Christian medical practice, harking back to and building on and taking further the excellences of the Christian Hippocratic tradition, in order that we may show that the excellence of alternative medical practice is attractive, not simply to those who come to this practice for reasons of personal conviction, but indeed to all those who seek humane medical help. Because, of course, it is this kind of medicine which is actually appropriate to human nature, as we believe it to be. And yet, of course, that is what we believe happened in the case of Hippocrates, the Hippocratic revolution in medicine in the Greece of late pagan antiquity was just that. It was the development of a distinctive dissident medical tradition. It was the development of what has been called, the oath has been called, a manifesto for medical reform. It was the offering of an alternative package in which patients were told, you can come to this physician if you wish. He will not do abortions. He will not do euthanasia. He won't get involved in physician-assisted suicide. But, as the oath says, he won't exploit 
the consulting situation for reasons of uh, sexual gain. He won't exploit the information which is gained in the consulting situation. He, and of course then it was simply he, uh, he will have a privileged commitment to the consulting relationship which will always go beyond the mere contractualism of fee-for-service. And so from its very beginnings, Hippocratic medicine has been medicine on a sliding scale, medicine with a pro bono element built into it, medicine practiced in the context of what has been called Hippocratic philanthropism. As we look back to the origins of this medical tradition which so impressed the first Christians, we look back to a situation in which there was a revolution and in which a, what then was, a new medicine came to triumph. As the excellences of this humane medical tradition came to appeal to those who sought medical help. And we may yet believe that as we nourish and maintain a distinctive Christian medical tradition, as we ensure that we do it in such a way as to form a springboard into the public arena and to offer a thorn in the side to those who would claim that the other medicine is a better medicine, we may yet believe that in the providence of God this medical tradition will itself lead to a new revolution, to a new reinstantiation of Christian hypocritism, and that in the grace of God we may be enabled to play our part to bring that about. Thank you. That was The Moral Health of Medicine by Dr. Nigel Cameron from the 1994 conference that launched the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. Registration for our 30th annual conference, The Christian Stake in Bioethics Revisited, is open and early bird rates are still in effect. For more information on the conference and to register, visit cbhd.org and click on Annual Conference at the top of the page. And don't forget about our Frankenstein Reading Group for CBHD members. To become a member, visit cbhd.org and click on Not a Member? Click here at the top right of the page. You've been listening to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity is a Christian bioethics research center at Trinity International University, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the center and to support the work of the center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website, cbhd.org. My name is Matthew Epinet, and I'm the Executive Director of the Center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast.